You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. If you do have your Bibles, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is in the New Testament, almost to the end of your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, we started our new series titled The Legacy, because what we're looking at ultimately in Paul's letter to Timothy and his second letter to Timothy is the legacy of Christ, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and what it looks like as a church to keep that legacy alive and moving forward. So that's why we've titled this series, The Legacy. I missed a couple weeks ago due uh, due to not feeling well. So we started chapter one, first couple verses, then we took a break, and then Brad last week preached chapter two. So now we're going back to chapter one to preach the section that I missed and was not here to preach on. So I'm thankful to be back. I'm thankful to be here with you guys today. I love my job. I love getting to preach and teach God's word. Someone asked me what my dream job would be and I said, I'm literally getting to live out my dream job. That, that's the honest truth, and I'm thankful for that. So uh, also, this morning, want to celebrate Tanner and Grace just got married last week. And so, yeah, yeah. They're with us this morning. Tanner, it's good to see you here this morning. So, yeah, <clears throat> with that, we're going to take a moment and pray before we dive into God's word this morning. So join me in prayer. Father, the fact that we get to call upon you and call you Father is only in because of your grace and because you first have called us your children. We pray that you'd remind us this morning what it is to be a child, what it is to be new creatures, what it is to have a new identity. Father, I know there's many in our church family, many who listen in that are ill, many who are struggling with anxiety and depression and many different things, including the situation and circumstance their life is in. I pray the greatest comfort we have is something Christ didn't have on the cross as he was forsaken. God, I pray that they would know because of what Christ did on the cross, we have your presence with us always, that you are faithful to be with us and to remain. God, I know there's people in this room celebrating, like Tanner and Grace, like many other, the joy of new life, new babies, even getting to hear that right now as I pray, God, we thank you for that blessing. So let us be a church family that grieves with those grieving and celebrates with those celebrating. Remind us of the truth of the gospel this morning. Let it be clear. Father, fill me with your spirit to, to teach and preach your word faithfully and accurately, to bring glory to you through exalting Jesus Christ all by the Spirit's power in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point this morning is going to be we protect what's precious. We protect what is precious. A great example that we naturally protect what's precious is this. Our family, before Tanner Grace's wedding last year, or last week, uh, was camping. And so we got our little camper trailer all set up into our camp spot and everything like that. And then our, our three kids are very, very social. And so they love to hop on their bikes and then go around and start meeting people in the campground. And so Allie, my wife, said, hey, before they do that, let's have a talk with them, okay? Let's have a talk with them that we don't go inside other people's trailers. So we brought the kids together, and Allie talked to them and said, hey, you guys can go around the campground, ride your bikes, do whatever you want to do, but you don't go inside other people's trailers. Even if they're really, really, really nice, we don't go inside people's trailers. So to make sure this point was clear and our kids were understanding, Allie said, okay, someone walks out of their trailer with a big plate of cookies and they say, we've got cookies for you. What do you do? And our middle child, Brooke, said, we say, we're taking those cookies, but we're not going in your trailer. 
and, and we're like, and we're like, no, <laughs> no, no. Allie goes, you don't even know what the ingredients in the cookies are. And then Joey's like, then we ask him what the ingredients are. And I'm like, I'm like you, guys, you guys are missing this big time. Thankfully, we had this talk, though, and we just had to clarify some things. But thankfully, we had the talk because they came back from the bike ride, and they're like, hey, a lady invited us into our trailer, and we said no. And so I'm like, good, okay. So it worked. But we did that because we want to protect our kids because they're precious to us. In fact, a couple years ago during the big snowstorm uh, that we had, some, some gentlemen had found their way onto our porch and were kind of pressing up in, into our front door. And so I opened the door and, and kind of with my body pushed them back. But part of that is that I wasn't going to let these guys start coming into our house. And just to be clear, the way this ended was them getting arrested on our front porch uh, our, in our driveway because they had a warrant out for their arrest. But I was like, I'm not going to let them get into our house because what's inside of our house is precious to me. The other ways that we can see this in our culture is, is we will protect what's precious. We'll even sacrifice what's precious. I've been bow hunting before and I had my bow in my hand and I, and, and I went to fall. And instead of putting the weight down on my bow or letting my bow hit, I put my hand down because to me, my bow seems more precious. So I'll guard it, keep it safe, and then just let my hand take the brunt of the fall. In fact, a story that's a little bit more tragic that shows that we value what's precious is that one of my close friends was at a swimming party a few weeks ago, and one of the other kids there actually drowned in the pool. The parents didn't notice it right away, but by the time they notice it, my friend Adam, some of you guys might have met him, he's a pastor down in Rito, uh, he leaped into the pool. In that moment, you don't think about your iPhone, you don't think about all those other things, you think about what is ultimately precious and then how do we protect it. Thankfully, they were able to resuscitate the child and the child is alive and fine today. But in that moment, you find out, I'm willing to give up anything else. Whatever, whatever I deem precious, this is more precious. Today, what we're gonna look at is the most precious thing that the church needs to be actively protecting is the gospel, the gospel of good news. And especially in a culture like the culture we live in today, the gospel does need protecting. And so that's what we're going to look at is that we protect what is precious. But we need to recognize this first. What's the gospel? Because we'll throw that out, that's language we use, and there's many people who have been Christians for years, and we'll say, what's the gospel? And we'll say, to do good things, and we're like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is literally translated good news. And it's good news because when God, the creator of this earth, created the earth, the, there's, there's really bad news, and that's humanity rebelled against God. And so God sent forth his son into the creation that he created to rescue and redeem them through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And the gospel is us placing our trust and faith in Jesus's work, not our own. And that's the message that needs to be protected. That's the message that is the most precious thing to Christians. And so we're going to look at this as our outline today. First, the ways that we protect the gospel. We're going to see that in verses three through eight, that we have clear instruction by Paul to Timothy how to protect the gospel, how to protect what's precious. Then we're going to see what is precious and why. So what is precious, the gospel clearly, and why? Why is it precious? And then what does the gospel need protecting from? Because I think there's a lot of confusion on that. What does the gospel actually need to be protected from, especially in our culture, in our day and age? That's where we're going. That's what we're going to look at. So if you would, read with me God's word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 3 through 14 right now. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly 
in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is what Paul says. We looked at a couple weeks ago his intro, that it's grace from beginning to end and the life between that is sandwiched in. But starting today in verse three, we first see in this verse that we have the ability to protect what is precious through praying. Verse three says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I don't believe it's Paul saying that I was praying every second of every day because prayers is plural. I believe he's saying that he's constantly though in a communion with God and what he's doing is giving God thanks for Timothy. And what he's, what he's doing is he's praying for Timothy. One of the greatest ways that we can protect what's precious to us is through prayer. Prayer is not some just secondary act or something on down the road where we go, hey, we'll just pray for you. Prayer is powerful. <laughs> like it's the most powerful thing we can do because who we get to talk to is the most powerful being in the entire universe. So prayer is not some super, superficial trite response Prayer is a weapon. In fact, we can do more through praying than we can through all of our lifetime of all the works that we are attempting to do. In fact, the gospel is how people are saved and transformed. Prayer is how we trust that the gospel gets from their heads into their hearts. For our kids, for people. Any great revival, as Brad said during prayer this morning, started by prayer. In fact, I would encourage us as gospel community leaders, but in gospel communities, to make prayer a priority in our groups this fall. Not something we just tack on at the end, but like this is the way that we go to battle for our brothers and sisters. In fact, I find great honor and delight in getting to pray for our elders and our elders' marriages and their children consistently. But I find such great delight and honor in getting to pray for my bride, my wife, and for my kids. In fact, I'm not saying this in any sort of way to boast, but just as an encouragement, is that I go in every night and pray over my kids. I pray over their minds and I pray over their hearts. Even when I'm sometimes driving the car, I look in the backseat and I'm reminded to pray. And the reason why is because there's gonna be a lot thrown at our kids. There's gonna be a lot thrown at us and one of the most powerful ways that we can battle and we can protect what's precious is through prayer. Look, in one generation, the gospel is assumed. This is D.A. Carson. In the next generation, it's forgotten. And in the next generation, it's completely lost. Let's combat that through prayer. We faithfully pray for the people in our lives. Next, we see here, 
The next way that we can protect what's precious in verse four is through discipleship. As I remember your tears. So this is when, what Paul's writing again, let's be reminded, he's writing from prison. And apparently when he departed from Timothy, there was tears. This is a heart-filled letter from the apostle Paul to Timothy. He's like, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Verse five, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. What is this? The second way we can protect what's precious is through discipleship. Like this was the great commission handed to us by Jesus is go forth and make disciples. One way that we protect what's precious is through faithfully engaging relationally into people's lives. It's gonna be hard to engage in discipleship when you are absent from the local church or absent from relational opportunities inside of the local church. So discipleship is is something that we can all engage in, inside of our homes, but inside of our church. In fact, we see it here, and we see a great picture of biblical discipleship because we see a mother and a grandmother. So this is being handed down from the grandmother to the mother, and then to Timothy. In fact, this is how Paul lays it out in his letter to Titus. We see that the older are caring for the younger, and it's this beautiful picture of discipleship. We have moment after moment of opportunities for discipleship, even with our kids' lives. I think sometimes we're hoping for a grand slam, like I'm just going to knock it out of the park and say the right thing at the right moment. What discipleship is, is daily, continually recognizing this. I have a great need for Jesus. You have a great need for Jesus, and he's a great Savior, and pointing constantly to him. I know I joke around. I, I told, I've told you guys before, but I, I commonly quote the famous theologian TLC and tell my daughters They don't need no scrub because a scrub is a guy that can't get no love from them. As a joke, I tell them that. But on a serious level, just driving in the car with them, I had a conversation with my oldest daughter the other day about why she needs a man at some point in her life, she's young, who knows the love that Christ has for him and loves Christ deeply. Otherwise, it's not going to be a man that knows how to love and care for her well. And we had a conversation about that. There's little moments and little conversations that we get to have day after day, year after year, with our family, with our friends, with people in and around our lives, that's discipleship. Sometimes I think we believe discipleship is this, I sit down with this older person and a younger person, this is the only time discipleship happens, this one-on-one. This is discipleship. We're, We're being taught God's word, gospel communities. That's discipleship. We're showing up, we're engaging, we're investing in and discipling one another. Those are the means in which we can be actively engaged in discipleship. Next, we see this. Verse six, that what, how we can protect what is precious is through gassing up the gift. Look here. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What, what Paul is saying here, and we see this many times, when we come uh, up here and we ordain elders and we lay our hands on them, we're not doing something supernatural in that moment to all of a sudden like something happens inside of them and their elder material, we're recognizing at that moment that what we see in them has already been acknowledged before us and before our church family. And Paul is essentially saying the same thing here is that there's these gifts that you've had that have been recognized in the laying on of my hands. But he's saying, stoke those, stir those up, fan those into flame, which is really difficult to do when you're going through bouts of anxiety and depression in life to think about how do I take the gifts the Spirit has given me and use those now to go and encourage and spur and stir up other people. It's really hard. But Paul's not writing from a place who doesn't understand difficulty. Again, he's in prison writing a letter 
a letter that is now being preached 2,000 years later that is being used to disciple, encourage, and exhort people's lives. So it's like, they're like, let's throw this dude in prison, shut him up and shut him down. And Paul's like, I'll just write letters that the church is going to use for generations ahead. But I also understand that even in this, that when we hear something like this, to stir up one another, to stoke the flame, what Paul is essentially saying is that the gifts inside of you, they can just kind of grow cold and dwindle if you're not actually using the gifts that the Spirit has given you. So listen to this, saints. The Holy Spirit, God himself, resides inside of you, and he's given you supernatural gifts. Those gifts have not been given so you can boast or just say that you have them. They're actually used and given so you can build up and encourage and exhort other people inside of the church. And in fact, I would argue this from someone who battles depression and battles anxiety, that one of the best things we can do in the times where depression is the worst is actually think about how we stir up other people's faith. Just so those of you listening don't think I'm one who can recognize it, this, this is one of the devotionals that I've written and how it starts is someone who has battled with depression. I said, many of you know what I'm talking about and you would do anything to escape the feeling, the feeling of fatigue, darkness, hopelessness, and the state of apathy, which leaves me only wanting to lie in bed and hope the season and feeling will be gone when I wake up. The thought of death becomes appealing, but the thought of Jesus returning and restoring our minds and bodies into glory sounds amazing. Opening my Bible sounds like a task too daunting for me. Reading, which I enjoy, has lost its appeal. Will this pass? What if it doesn't? What if I live in this state of mind? These are some of the questions I start to ponder. I'm a pastor, and before that, I'm a child of God. So I should feel happy and be joyful, right? I'm outgoing, so how would people respond to me if they saw me in this state of mind? What do I do? Again, Paul is not writing this and saying, hey, for all of you guys that are in awesome spots in life that just got it all together, this applies for you. He's saying, this applies for everyone in the church. The hurting, the struggling, the broken, and the weak, which makes up, I would say, all of us are called to do something here. And in fact, we're not just called to do it, but God supernaturally equips us to do it. Let's look at this verse, Romans 12, four through eight says this. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. <laughs> Notice, use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we can look at the list in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. But what we see and understand is this, the Holy Spirit abides and resides inside of us and empowers us to actually fan in and stir up one another. In fact, Hebrews tells us to do this. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another. That word stir up is actually like spur it is like get involved in people's lives to help stir them up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging them, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one of the ways we protect what's precious is actually using the gifts that God has given us. We, we stir up our own faith by learning to stir up other people's faith. We, 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 we become passionately on fire for God, not when we just sit around thinking about all that's right and wrong with me, but as we get out of our minds and say, how do I love and serve and be a blessing to others? That's how we protect what's precious. Next, courage. Courage is how we protect what's precious. Look here, verse seven. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, 
but of power and love and self-control. Courage is going to look different for every person in this room and everyone listening. But no matter what, God has placed his spirit inside of us. Fear is not from God, but what is, is power. That's a word that is confusing to many people, but power can be thought of as strength under control, bridled strength. You can think of a horse with a bit in its mouth, and it's controlled by that. And so we're called to have power. We're called to step into messiness. We're called to step into places that are uncomfortable to us. And we're to do that in love and with self-control. This is how we protect what's precious. Not sitting on the sidelines, not removing ourselves, but knowing that a spirit of fear has not been given to us, I can step into this. Sometimes some of our people just need to pray about, what is it that I'm not stepping into that God is calling me to step into so that I can be faithful? And I want to encourage you guys to do that. Next, suffering is how we protect what's precious. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I would say this. If you are getting some pushback for upholding biblical truths in the gospel in the Pacific Northwest, you're probably living (laughs) faithful. If everyone agrees with every position that you have ideologically, philosophically, and biblically, I'm I'm, going to push back on that big time. And I think one way that we can know if we're protecting what's precious is, is there suffering in our lives? Let's be honest, Westerners, we're not good at suffering. We don't like suffering. We consume 80% of the world's opiates. Is it because we just have a massive pain problem? I think it's because we don't like discomfort. So Brad preached on suffering last week. Part of it is that we, we avoid anything in life that makes us uncomfortable. And sometimes the way we get pushback, sometimes the way we endure suffering is to step in with what's uncomfortable, but to step in with grace and truth. Uphold what God's word says about male and female. Uphold what God's word says about sexuality. Uphold these things, and you're not going to be popular in the Pacific Northwest. But God says, Jesus says in Luke, woe to those where everyone says and speaks well of them. In other words, those that are liked by all. Watch out. Because Paul was not liked by all. You don't end up being liked by all and then ending up in prison. Paul was more focused on protecting what's precious, the legacy of Jesus Christ. And we need to be more concerned about not who likes us, who loves us, who accepts us and approves of us, but we need to be concerned with protecting the legacy of Jesus Christ. Okay, so these are some ways that Paul lines up. Here's how you can protect what's precious. Prayer, discipleship, gassing up your gift, courage, and suffering. In fact, he even gives examples of people in verses 15 through 18 that do this well. He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turn away from me, among whom are Vigelis and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesprus. These are so hard to say, guys. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him mercy, to find mercy from the Lord on that day. This is an example of two people who are like, nah. I'm not willing to suffer, but it's also an example of someone who's like, I'm going to go. I'm going to find Paul. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to engage, even if that brings suffering to my life. But then we have to ask, what exactly is precious? Why is the gospel precious? What is the gospel? And Paul answers this explicitly starting in verse 9. He says, as he finished with the sentence before, for the gospel by the power of God. Look at verse 9. Who saved us? So God saved us. What do we need to be saved from? Here's what's not going to be popular. You need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from God. 
Because as Ephesians 2 says, you were born dead in your trespasses. As Romans 10 says, you're an enemy of God. As Romans 8 says, you're hostile in your thinking toward God. And as Romans 3 says, there's no one good, no, not one. You need to be saved from the wrath of a justice and holy God. Not because God is evil, but quite the contrary. God is so good that darkness cannot dwell in its presence. You think about it, but when you turn on the light in a dark room, there's not a back and forth battle that happens. The light consumes the darkness. So it is with God. He would consume anything that's dark inside of his presence. So the first thing we need to be saved from, I'm okay if no one in the, the world likes me from here until the end of my life. I would like my wife and my kids to like me. But even in that, I would rather have no one like me than be an enemy of God. What about you? So first we need to be saved from God, but we, we, we are saved to God. So we're saved from God, from his wrath. How? We're, we're about to see, but we're also saved to God through Jesus Christ, but we're also saved to something. Look, look here with me in verse nine. Who saved us and called us. The English word called comes from the Greek word kaleho, which could also be translated name, that God named us holy. God called us to a holy calling. You, you, you go from sinner, not just to sinless. You go from sinner to completely holy. You go from sinner to just as holy as God himself because only someone as holy as God can dwell in the presence of a holy God. In fact, the word for holy right here is the same word that's translated oftentimes saints. It's hagiazo. That's the Greek word, not the Greek out on us, but the, 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 the Greek word here for holy is hagiazo. When Jesus prays his prayer to God the Father and says, hallowed be your name, what he's saying is hagiazo be your name. The same way that Jesus refers to the Father is the same thing that we receive as new creatures, a new, a new identity as holy in Christ. Do you view yourself like that? Because that's how God views you, that you are holy. So you are saved from God to God, but also to this new creature, this new identity that we get to live out of. How? Well, keep reading. He tells us, it's not because of our works. He makes that so clear. We don't get this because of our works, our efforts, our best days or our worst days, but because of his own purpose and grace. The only reason you go from sinner to completely holy, just as holy as God, just as holy as Jesus Christ refers to God, is by grace, not your works at all. By his purpose, by his grace, that's how you get there. And just to be sure of it, it says this, by his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So just to be sure that you knew your salvation was not about what you do or don't do by, the, by every moment of every day, it was chosen before this world was even put in motion. God knew you, he knew everything that you would do, and he said that you're going to be mine and placed in Christ. And it was so secure that he chose to do that before the foundation of the world. God doesn't regret you, you're not a mistake. He knew you and knew that you would be his. All because of his grace. Look, verse 10, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished, got rid of death, through his resurrection and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What we protect and what's precious, this was the summary of the gospel. The fact that you go from sinner under the wrath of God to completely holy saint set apart. It happens by one way and one way only. Salvation is not a system. It's not a strategy. It's a person named Jesus Christ. We trust in his life of obedience we trust in his work that he finished on the cross. We trust in his resurrection. 
And then by that, we're saved. Did you know that through faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you actually become precious to God? I don't know how you feel subjectively, but I know this objectively, that you, if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, are costly and precious to God. Not only are you holy, not, are, no, not only are you infinitely loved and righteous, but you're precious. In fact, 1 Peter 2.4 says that. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You are precious to God. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night throughout the day, you can be reminded of that. I'm holy. In fact, I'm called to live into this holiness. I don't try to be holy so that God will see me as holy and then love me. He's made me holy. He's made me perfect. He's loved me. And now I live out of this new nature and this new identity. And I'm precious, not because I'm doing good things for God, not because I'm trying real hard. You're precious by God's grace and through faith in what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished for you. And a room full of quiet people could say amen. I mean, if you wanted, I was just saying. Paul says in verse 11, which is why, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. These positions, apostle don't exist anymore, but preacher, to proclaim God's word and teacher, to teach the applications of how it applies to the way we live our lives. So we've looked at this, ways we protect what's precious, what is precious, and why is it precious? Let me say this too. Did you know the gospel is the only message proclaimed that can actually give an instant heart transplant to someone? Think about that. You can share nice things with people. You can empathize with them. You can say a lot of cool stuff. Actually sharing the message of the legacy of Jesus Christ, the gospel proclaimed from your mouth has the ability to go in and take a heart of stone and replace it with a new heart. Only the gospel does that. So when we think about entering into discipleship and, and, and praying, these are the things we pray. The gospel is the power for eternal life. The gospel is the power for immortality. The gospel is what people need. What we need to protect it from, which is what we're moving into now, is human effort. If you believe there's any drop of anything that you do or add to the gospel for the gospel to be the gospel, you have no gospel. You have your human-made man's effort in religion. The gospel is Christ's work and Christ's work alone. I have a prop here to help explain this. I know we have people in our church that are wine drinkers and some that are not. Either way, I think you can understand the purpose of this. This was a really expensive bottle of wine that was given to me. You can tell who the wine drinkers are in our church right now because they're salivating and drooling. It was given to me. How does it make you feel if I take a really nice wine and do this to it? Oh, what was that? <laughs> I've got more sounds coming out of that than out of anything I said about Jesus Christ. Come on, Ken, get me back there. Thank you. Yeah, we might have a problem. I'm, just, I'm calm. I'm good. You're watering down something that someone goes, oh, that's precious. Just to be clear, it's like an $8 bottle of wine, so you can calm down. But here's the thing. That's what many people nowadays are doing to the gospel because if, as soon as you say that the gospel is not a sufficient gospel and you're not preaching the gospel unless you're talking about this or unless you're saying this or unless you're doing this, if your gospel has Jesus plus anything else, it's not the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. In fact, if I just take this and just add a little drop into the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. 
It's your efforts plus Jesus' efforts, and that is nullifying the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul goes on to say here, he's like, but, but I'm not ashamed, for I know of him whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he knows that it's ultimately God who is going to protect what's precious, and what's precious to God is the work that his son accomplished. Then he says, follow the pattern of sound words. In other words, follow the outline is how this can be translated. The sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit, which dwells within us. Guard, Timothy, guard. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So yes, God's going to ultimately guard it, but he's, but, but he's empowering us through the Holy Spirit to say, you guard it as well. Our outline's given to us by the blood of Christ. We don't need a new outline. We don't need to tinker with it at all. Can you imagine how offended Leonardo da Vinci would be if, if he was alive today? And I was hired as a guard at the Louvre Museum in Paris to guard the Mona Lisa. And then we have a picture of the Mona Lisa. Hopefully you guys can see it. There you go. It's the Mona Lisa. What if I said, though, as someone who was just supposed to guard it, like, it's good the way that it is, but I was like, I don't know. I mean, she doesn't look that happy. And so I was just like, hey, as a guard of it, I just made a couple tweaks. A couple tweaks. Nothing major. How offended would Leonardo da Vinci be? Offended. I'm like, she looks a little grim. I made her look happier. Just, just some small tweaks. Guys, the gospel doesn't need tweaks. It needs to be proclaimed and herald, heralded explicitly, shamelessly. It needs to be guarded and protected. From what? From people that come in and say, you can't preach the gospel unless you say this, 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 and this. It needs to be guarded from terminology that's being brought in that's not biblical to say we have two categories of oppress and oppressor. That's not biblical categories. We have sinner and we have sinless or holy. Yes, there was plenty of systems that could have been overthrown in Jesus's day. Rome was a mess, but Jesus came to preach and proclaim the gospel. We see this in Mark. It says in Mark 1.14, now after Jesus, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In fact, he started doing some healing and his apostles and disciples came and said, hey, we basically got everyone lined up for you. In Mark 1, 35 through 39, and rising very, very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Yes, Jesus did healing. Yes, he casted out demons. But even in the story of the man who was healed and the paralytic, Jesus first said, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. The first and most important thing that we can do as Christians living in this culture and day is to protect what's precious, protect the gospel, we could turn this whole world into the way that they describe a utopia would be brought in if we do this and say this and, and, and usher in all these things. But here's the honest truth. Unless a new heart is given, we could have a pretty world with, filled with lost people. The gospel changes that. It heals and fixes what's broken, ultimately a relationship with God and then with one another. So we need to know and hear this as we wrap up today, that we are called... <laughs> to protect what's precious. But we need to know and hear this, hear this, that ultimately God will be the one that always protects what's precious. And you, who 
have placed your trust and faith in him, you are precious to God, and he will always protect you, which is why Paul says, there's neither height nor death, nor rulers, nor anything in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. If you're precious to God, because you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus, because of his grace, he's going to guard you and keep you until that day and for all eternity, because he keeps and protects what's precious to him. Let the way that we live our lives be a model and a reflection of that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Lord, I pray that the gospel is protected from anything that would seek to nullify it, change it, water it down. Let us know that your work is sufficient. Let us know that your blood is the outline that we need to follow. Let us know that the gospel is not just necessary, it's sufficient. Let it produce so much freedom in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.